But I think that a healthy perspective, both psychologically and spiritually, is that even when a full chuva, a full restitution, a full repair isn't necessarily possible in a realistic way, part of thinking above that horizon of healthy thinking is what is a good thing I can do, even if it's not a perfect thing I can do? What is an improving thing that I can do? A line that I, I love from Dr. Maya Angelou is she says, you know, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. So even someone who's done the most heinous crimes, even who's someone who's done really, really terrible things, that there's no room for forgiveness on an interpersonal level on the part of their victims, between that person and him or herself or that person and God, there might be room for at least some of those phases of repair and remorse in a personal and unspiritual way. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are dedicated to tshuva, commonly translated as repentance or return. What is repentance according to Jewish law? The Rambam writes in his Mishnah Torah, in the second halacha of the second chapter of Hilchot Tshuva, the following. Umahi ha what is repentance? Hu she'azov ha-chotei That is when the sinner abandons the sin, and takes it out of his mind. And he concludes in his heart that he will not do it again. He also must regret what he did in the past. And the knower of secrets, God, will testify about him that he will not return to the sin ever again. And he must verbally confess saying these things that he has concluded in his heart. In a certain sense, this classic formulation sounds pretty easy. Regret, determination not to do it again, and confession. Simple. In practice, however, it's often much more difficult. And psychologically, the processes of repenting, apologizing, and forgiving are very complex. What does it mean to regret, to experience shame, And how is this regret required by Jewish law different from the paralyzing shame that psychologists often discourage? Can someone truly experience shame when that same person still reaps the benefits of his wrongdoing? Is apologizing to someone different from asking for forgiveness? And what exactly is forgiveness anyway? Are there techniques that can make it easier for us to forgive those who have hurt us? Is it ever wrong to apologize? And what if someone is convinced that he or she is simply unredeemable. In order to discuss these issues, both from religious and psychological perspectives, I was honored to host marriage and family therapist Elisheva Liss on today's podcast. We'll get to that conversation momentarily. First, subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and review it as well. Please join the conversation on our Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group. I also invite you to subscribe for free to my Substack, Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. If you are an existing subscriber, or if you subscribe by the Friday before Yom Kippur, I will send you my PDF, The 13 Attributes of Mercy According to Sefer Tomer Devora. Again, it's free. You can cancel at any time. So please subscribe today. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, the most effective way to get your message out to a wide audience is by having a high-quality, professionally produced podcast. And at JCH Podcast Productions, we will do exactly that. Go to jchpodcast.com 
or write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com to learn how we can help you make a fantastic and effective podcast. Elisheva Liss is a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice and author of Find Your Horizon of Healthy Thinking, a narrative therapy technique. She's also a homeschooling mom and digital course creator, including Sacred Not Secret, a religious family's guide to healthy, holy sexuality education. More of her content, including over 150 blog posts on relationships, mental health, and spirituality, can be found on elishevelis.com. Elishevelis, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, we're approaching Yom Kippur, and we often note that tshuva, repentance, that might be a definition that we might want to revisit, but tshuva in Jewish law and thought typically and halakhically consists of three primary elements. There is confession of the sin, there's regret for the past, and there's also resolve not to do it again. Now, of course, if this also involves other people, then you have to apologize to that other person and make restitution when possible. But I'd like to focus right now on one element, specifically regret, because something that a lot of people talk about is whether shame call it regret, call it guilt, call it shame, is a positive or a negative thing, a negative emotion. So I know that psychologists do discuss the difference between a healthy kind of shame and a paralyzing kind of shame. Could you explain what that difference is and perhaps relate it to this concept of harata, of regret? Sure. Thank you. Yeah, it's a really rich topic. I think both in you know the Torah sources, Tanakh and Chazal have like a very rich vocabulary when it comes to process the cognitive and emotional and spiritual processes that a person that we take ourselves through when we're working on our relationships, self-improvement, our connection to God. Um, And, um, you know, I I try not to speak outside the scope of, you know, but as a Jew and as a therapist, I I, I love seeing how they kind of mesh together because there's so many beautiful parallels. Um, I think that there's been, particularly in our lifetimes, I think this movement to really focus a lot more on the the toxic version of shame and how that kind of holds people back. Um, people like to talk about the difference between shame and guilt, and the t- or the difference between you know unhealthy shame versus healthy shame. There are some distinctions, subtle distinctions between those two, but I think a lot of it is is semantic. I think that in general, whenever we're looking at any kind of an experience, a cognitive experience, a thought process, and a emo- emotional experience, psychological, um, or even interpersonal or, you know, external to ourselves, something that we go through, I like to kind of categorize it into three general perspectives. There's what I call below the horizon of healthy function, which is when something's pulling us in an unproductive negative spiral. Um, and that can exist along different um, emotional spectra. It could be, you know, a deep anger that doesn't take us anywhere good or deep resentment or frustration or sadness that just kind of pulls us downward and doesn't really propel to um, health or growth or repair. Then we could do what I call on the horizon of healthy function, which is it's not it's not necessarily pulling us downward. It's not sabotaging, but it's not necessarily going anywhere. It just kind of is what it is. And then there's like a third possibility, which is more um, I think of it as above the horizon of healthy function, which is a version of the story, again, whether it's a thought, a feeling, a social interaction, a a hypothesis and experience that is growth promoting, right? That it it takes us to a more helpful, constructive, productive place. Um, And obviously what we want to be doing is trying as much as possible to notice when we're in one of those lower head spaces, lower mindsets and move ourselves up as much as possible. Obviously it's not always possible, but sometimes to that place of like, you know, I can't always control what's happening, whether what's happening outside of me or between another person, even within, you know, between my own ears. Um, But sometimes what I can be in control of is how do I want to respond? What do I want to do next? What can I do to generate some kind of growth? 
some kind of acceptance, kind of a healthy response to it. So that, that feeling of shame or guilt, I think um, they're, they're, they're different. Actually, um, Dr. Brené Brown, who is one of the Godolot Hador in, in, in the psychotherapy world, and in general in pop psychology, a lot of people know who she is. Um, she gives us actually four in one of her, I, I hope I'm quoting her correctly because it's been a few years since I saw this, but I remember being very moved by it. She gives us actually like a four quadrants of, of you know, sort of this family of emotions. She talks about shame and guilt and embarrassment and humiliation. And so with your permission, I'll just explain those a little bit quickly. Yeah. Please do. And I'll also say that when I told my wife that we were going to be speaking about this topic, she said, oh, I have to listen to Brene Brown on this exact topic because oh, she yes. was, she's yes. also a student of hers. Oh, yes. <laughs> Brene Brown is extremely influential on specifically this topic, just in general. She has a you know, wealth of emotional vocabulary and intelligence that she's given our generation. So um, one of the one of the distinctions that she makes is, let's say, embarrassment would be like the most superficial layer of this feeling. So let's say, you know, that feeling of let's say you're in a public place and then you realize you've been walking around with a piece of toilet paper stuck to your shoe. Um, so that's that's embarrassing, but it's not like deep or personal or, you know, very profound because it's like, you know, it's kind of thing that could happen to anyone. You feel a little embarrassed in the moment, but you can get past it. Right. Um, humiliation would be like a little bit of a deeper emotion. I, I actually could think of a good example of humiliation. Humiliation is generally like something that's inflicted on us by someone else that we feel is not rightfully ours. It's a childhood memory, but I think it encapsulates it well. I remember I was in sleepaway camp. And um, we were singing Zmirot and everybody was really into it. And um, at my table, my bunk, we were singing really loudly and uh, we didn't hear that there was one of the uh, adult staff members asking for quiet so we could bench. And so that staff member comes over and starts yelling at our table and singles me out by name. My grandparents were the directors of the camp and she made some kind of comment about, you know, your grandparents are directors, that's so rude, that's so chutzpahdik, whatever. And I remember turning red, I was very embarrassed and humiliated. And I remember thinking like, I'm not upset because I think I did something wrong. Like, I know that this mistake was like an innocent mistake. It's nice to sing Smirod in camp. It was just, you know, I didn't hear the call for quiet. But being singled out like that, that's humiliating, right? And I am mochel that person. Um, but but I Important think Important to say this time of year. Yeah, yeah, I'm over it. But I just think it's a, it's a good example of what humiliation feels like. It's not like, oh, I'm so mad at myself for doing something wrong, but I just feel like called out in a way that doesn't feel fair. And then the the other examples she gives are guilt and and shame. And I, this is not her fidush. I don't think this is this specifically is hers, but she talks about it very eloquently is guilt is I feel bad because I did something wrong. Like I'm a good person and that doesn't resonate with my core values. And shame is I am bad. I am something wrong. Or if you want to make that distinction between toxic shame and, uh, and, and healthy shame. So again, toxic shame would be like, I am beyond redemption. I am garbage. I am terrible. Um, and healthy shame was, would be like, I'm ashamed of myself. I shouldn't be doing things like that. I need to fix it. I need to do better. And that would be more aligned with her definition of guilt. Can I just ask you a question on that before you continue, Alicia? Sure. So if I understand properly, just to make sure I understand these categories, embarrassment and humiliation are not moral categories. These are not about doing something wrong or doing something that offends somebody. You are embarrassed about an event. As you said, you have toilet paper stuck to your shoe or someone humiliated you, but you didn't do anything morally wrong. Whereas shame and guilt or toxic shame and healthy shame are actually moral categories almost. They're about something which I did, which was not appropriate. And the question is what I'm going to feel about that particular thing. Is that correct? So based on the examples I gave, that would be a very astute distinction. I'm not sure. Meaning I, I hadn't really thought about it that way. I think that a person could feel morally embarrassed and even morally maybe humiliated um, in the sense of may, maybe not morally humiliated because part of the definition of humiliation is I don't really think I did something wrong, but somebody's trying to shame me for it. Then that would be like I reject the blame for that embarrassment. I think that the notion of embarrassment versus the others is that it's more superficial. So, for example, let's say I made an insensitive comment that I couldn't have known better, you know, like they made a faux pas. 
Right. And so I'm embarrassed because, oh, gosh, I, I caused that person pain. And I, I wish I had not known not to say that. But, you know, so there's a, like a moral component, but it's a little bit more superficial because I don't I, I don't feel like horribly guilty. Like, oh, man, that was so bad that I did that. It's more just like, oh, I'm embarrassed that I didn't think before that. You know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just more super. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I haven't really thought about it that way. I do wonder if embarrassment can often be when you see somebody in the public eye gets caught and they express their regret and you wonder, okay, do they genuinely feel regret or are they sorry that they got caught? And I wonder if that might be what you call embarrassment. Yeah. And that's kind of parallel to in that article that I had sent you that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later when a person says like, are you sorry because you recognize that you did something hurtful and it wasn't cool? Or are you you sorry because you don't want us to be in a fight and you don't want me to be mad at you? So I guess that would be the parallel in terms of the public figure. Right. Are you are you, are you distressed by what you did? Are you distressed by the consequence that now you have to pay for it? Right. Um, but anyway, I think the, the focus for today is really more on the, the guilt and shame component. But I do think it was worthwhile to bring in those other ones just to kind of flesh out the context. Um, there's another um, sort of psychological construct that I think is very helpful in terms of understanding the core personal roots of where a lot of this comes from. There's a notion in um, in psychology called egodystonic behavior versus egosyntonic behavior. Egosyntonic is when I feel like I'm acting in alignment with my values. Um, and egodystonic is when I feel like I'm acting outside of alignment with my values, right? So if I think that it's totally fine to smoke cigarettes and you know, I know people who smoked into their 90s and lived a long, healthy life. Then if I smoke, which I don't, but if I smoke, then I would think, OK, that's fine. Whereas if I think, oh, I'm smoking, but I'm probably going to die young from it, then I'm acting in an ego dystonic way. Um, another phrase that is often used as cognitive dissonance, right? like with what I know is dissonance with what I'm doing, then that's an uncomfortable feeling. And I think both shame and guilt are a result of that asynchronicity between, you know, what I believe and what I value and what I perceive myself to be in any in any moment. Um, I remember once hearing, I didn't see this, you know, firsthand, but I heard it and I thought it was really lovely. I heard in the name of the Dubna Magid, um, and he said something like, what hunger is to the body, guilt is for the soul, right? So even though it's not a fun sensation to feel hungry, it's a gift to know that like our stomachs tell us like, oh, you haven't eaten in a while should probably feed your body um, because otherwise we, some people might forget to eat. I probably wouldn't, but some people would forget to eat and, and then they'd be malnourished. And so likewise, in terms of like guilt, you know, it's, it's not a good feeling to feel guilty, but if I guilty, healthy guilt about something like, oh, I, I really shouldn't have done that, or I really should have been more on top of this, that unpleasant feeling that it generates is for good for my soul, because it, it propels me to fix if I can fix it or apologize or do better next time. Something that I, I was thinking about actually in preparation for our conversation was how the word busha in Hebrew is for the use of shame, and it's used in very dramatic contexts um, often. And um, but it's also lehit is, is is the word for embarrassment, which actually feels to me like it really is sort of along the same continuum of emotional experience. And you know, we have a tradition that the idea of midot, you know, the, the, these measures, these traits that we can experience, are not usually inherently bad or good on their own, but they're it, it's more about the way they're applied. There are some midos that are more applicable, more easily applicable to, you know, positive moral choice. Um, but even even ones that are not necessarily good, like there's a time for positive chutzpah and there's a time for positive gaiva. And I think that there is a time for a positive busha also. I once read, and you're the rabbi, so you'll tell me if you know a source for this, but I remember reading once and thinking it was really nice that the word busha is connected to the word boshesh, like he boshesh moshe la red min haha, or boshesh sisra, right? And, and, um, which means, means hesitation or to delay delay yeah and so i was thinking that if i delay in in the sense that i'm not being impulsive and i stop and i pause and i think like is this thing that i'm about to say or do going to be something that i might regret later then that is a great example of busha as a deterrent right like it stops me it literally delays my decision and says 
fun? Is this really what I want to be doing? And that is a very useful um, construct for like anticipatory shame. Like I don't want to do something that I'm going to re- afterwards. I'm going to have a shame, you know, be ashamed of afterwards. And, and there's this the idea of like in habayshan bamid, right? If you're too embarrassed, you're not going to learn. But also like we are bayshan and bayshan, right? Like we're we're you know uh, people that are very self aware. And so I think that version of of busha is a very positive version. Um, I think it's not like very. I don't say politically correct, but it's not trendy to talk about shame as a positive experience. But I think that in the, that context, if people prefer the word guilt, that that's also a good, you know, a, a good application. Um, yeah. Okay. So I want to ask a little bit about that concept of the good guilt versus the bad guilt or the healthy shame versus the paralyzing shame, I guess, guilt versus shame, yeah. whichever terminology we choose to use. Yeah. The question is this. You said that this paralyzing shame is when you say, I'm a bad person. Yeah. I'm irredeemable. And I can instinctively understand why that's not a good thing to have. Yeah. What does somebody do if somebody feels like that? In other words, it might not be a healthy emotion, but it does exist. And many of us suffer from that. And maybe we actually believe it. And we say, I am a bad person. And my job is to make myself into a good person. That's very different from saying I'm a good person who did something bad. And truthfully, it's not even so ridiculous to think about it in Jewish thought, because we generally say whether you're a good person or a bad person is based on what you do. The whole sure. concept of Rosh Hashanah is there's a scale, metaphorically, and you're either a tzaddik or a rasha. These are definitional as opposed to behavioral terms. You are this or you are that. I'm not saying that we have to interpret it like that, but it's easy to do so. So my question number one is, how does somebody get over that sense of paralyzing shame? And maybe even before that, why is it necessarily a negative idea? Maybe somebody really is a bad person and has to internalize that in order to change. Okay. So you're asking a bunch of things and I'm just scribbling furiously because I want to address all of them. <laughs> the first one I think is, let's say when we think about let's say depression versus grief, right? Which is not our subject for today, but I'm using it as an analogy, right? So if a person is grieving, right? If they're mourning, it can look an awful lot like depression, but the difference between grief and depression is that there's an external event that we can point to and say, oh, there's a reason that this person won't stop crying. They're grieving. And so there's a situational reality that sort of validates and justifies and contains the experience that a person's going through and, and depathologizes it. So likewise, if I think I'm a terrible person, but like most, most other humans would look at my life and say, okay, look, you make mistakes. You're not perfect, but like, you're a really good person. You mostly do good things in your life and the mistakes that you make relative to, you know, if we're talking about like that Rambam scale, you know, like, you know, good and bad, whatever. So if, if objectively your scale is tilted significantly towards positive, which, and again, in a minute, I'll say that we don't really know what that means, but let's say we do by most people's most human standards, then we're dealing with a sort of pathologized like dysmorphia about our own moral well-being and that is like a sort of a, a spiritual low self-worth that needs to be attended to and um something that i've read about actually more in the coaching literature than psychology is that there are co- there are certain core fears that people have which are inadequacy and unlovability i'm not good enough and therefore i'm not worthy of love and that people spend a lot of time and energy both in healthy and unhealthy ways trying to um correct those core fears of like i need to feel adequate i need to feel worthy i need to feel lovable i need to make sure that I can connect with other people. And, you know, sometimes those are good motivators. Sometimes they're desperate, unhealthy motivators, but like deep down, we all want to feel that we have that we have potential, we have worth, and um, therefore we can have connection with with other humans. And I actually think of it as a triangle of connection, relationship to ourselves, relationship to other human or humans and relationship with God. In terms of like how we quantify if someone's a bad person or a good person, we know that like 
I think there's like a little bit of tension, let's say, between like the a Hasidish and a Litvish approach to this, um, you know, which would be, let's say, you know, the Hasidish approach. And I don't mean contemporary Hasidish groups. I mean, like philosophical, you know, Hasidic. Approach. Right. Classically and philosophically speaking. Right. right. <laughs> Understood. Right. So like wh- whether you want to focus on the fact that we start our day by saying, like we all start with this core goodness that is a gift from God that we say called, right, that there is like a baseline goodness that everybody has that, you know, like there's a goodness inside. And then the the Averod and the mistakes that we make are kind of like dirt that's superimposed onto that goodness. Or do we take like a more Midat Hadin approach where we kind of say like, no, you know, if you do enough bad things, then you're just kind of a bad person. And like, then you have to contend with that. Even according to that, and also we say, you know, we be as careful with like small, relatively small or light mitzvot as 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 uh, heavy ones, or and I guess the transgressions are the same because in we don't know which are the what the actual weight is of each of them. So even when we, you know, try to make assessments, right, when we talk about, oh, this person's a big tzaddik and this person is such a bad person, we don't really know what's going on behind, behind closed doors. We don't know what kind of a scale God is grading them on. So even in terms of that, we don't really know what the scales look like. But even ostensibly, right, you have a person who's a violent criminal, you have a you know, person who just does good all the time. There's certain people that you, it's fair enough to make a, an assessment. I like to think of, let's say, even in the Torah literature, we have, you know, Elazar ben Daya in terms of, you know, sexual sin. We have Nuvazar Adan in terms of, you know, interpersonal and violence and, you know, Sarah Tabachim. You know, we, we have examples of people who are worse than anyone we know, right, like in terms of what they've done. Um, and there's some kind of redemption, at least Ben Adam Lamakom, right, right? Not everything is correctable or redeemable. There is constant, you know, there are you know, certain things that can't be corrected. But I think that a healthy perspective, both psychologically and spiritually, is that even when a full chuva, a full restitution, a full repair isn't necessarily possible in a realistic way, part of thinking above that horizon of healthy thinking is what is a good thing I can do, even if it's not a perfect thing I can do? What is an improving thing that I can do? A line that I, I love from Dr. Maya Angelou is she says, you know, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. So even someone who's done the most heinous crimes, even who's someone who's done really, really terrible things, that there's no room for forgiveness on an interpersonal level on the part of their victims, between that person and him or herself or that person and God, there might be room for at least some of those phases of repair and remorse in a personal and unspiritual way. And so even if even if a person's going to say, no, I, I actually really am a terrible person, even by you know objective world standards. You know, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy theory with parenting children, right? We all know you're not supposed to say to a kid, bad boy, bad girl, because, you know, if you tell them you're bad, you're stupid, whatever, then they're going to be like, oh, if I'm bad and stupid, then I might as well live up up to my title. And so I think the same is true of our own, you know, our emotional selves are like an inner child. So if we say I'm a bad person and I really start to like feel down in the dumps about that, then that's only going to drive me darker and, and further down into those depths of despair and discouragement and like kind of like almost like an addictive quality of like, okay, well, I guess like I give up on myself. So even if a person says like on the basis of my behaviors, like if I was giving myself a report card on my moral behaviors until this point, I would say, no, I'm really not such a good person. I've done some things that, I'm, that are really terrible. I think it still would be beneficial to locate and, and touch base with that inner core goodness that I, that I believe at least, you know, is, is, is a gift that we all have as part of our soul. And, you know, babies are not born guilty and say like, how can I get back to that? Right. That's why Chuba means return, right? Like, how can I get back to some form of that innocence? Like I said, it might not always be realistic to come back to full innocence, but how can I make some kind of repair? You know, it's interesting 
based on a couple of things he said now, I had a couple of thoughts. First of all, in terms of that pasuk you mentioned, and that which is crooked cannot be made straight. An example given in the Gemara of that is if somebody has an illicit sexual affair and the child is a mamzer. Unfortunately, there's nothing you can do about that. The child is a mamzer, and you can't undo that particular fact. That's in some ways metaphorical for other things that we do. You can't undo the action necessarily. The consequences of that action, whether or not you did shuva, those consequences remain. A friend of mine often says, we don't decide how much we pay for what we do wrong interpersonally. Just because somebody does the crime and even did the time, society doesn't necessarily have to say, well, you did the time, you're totally pure. Now you're good to go, yeah. It's not necessarily so simple. But between us and God, I think that we can say, that's not about consequences. That's about repairing a relationship. And there, there's no such thing as lo yacholitko, it cannot be rectified. Between people, maybe it can't be rectified. In terms of consequences, maybe it can't be rectified. But at least as I understand it, with God, we're always able to rectify. And that leads me to my second point, which is when you mentioned before this concept of people fear the need to earn love. And in fact, a canard that was often addressed towards Jews over the centuries was that, whereas, for example, Christian love is a pure love, Jews have to earn God's love. And that's simply not true. In fact, at night, at least in the Ashkenazic tradition, we say, Avat olam beit Yisrael amcha hafta. You have loved us with an infinite love. Therefore, you gave us the Torah. It's not that we have the Torah and therefore we get God's love. We have the Torah because of God's love. God's love is primary. And even if we mess up the second half, that love, like a parent and a child, never goes away. So that's how I understand and some of the issues that you mentioned right now. That's at least how I would take it. I guess we both have a little chasidus and Arnashamas, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's no question yeah. about it. A lot of people, I find, seem to think, and I understand where this comes from, that charata, this idea of regret is the most difficult aspect of repentance because it's very hard often to regret. When I do something that I'm truly embarrassed, humiliated about, or feel shame about, feel guilt about, then the sense of I want to rectify it, I get it easily. But a lot of the times when it's something which I benefited from, like an example would be, let's say somebody, for example, did something that was financially unethical. But the bottom line is that now this person is a very wealthy individual and maybe he feels bad and he says, I'm never going to do it again. It's, however, very difficult for that person, I think, to say he truly regrets doing it since now he lives in a beautiful house and drives a beautiful car and is able to afford whatever he wants to say, well, I regret doing it. Well, really, do you actually regret doing it? Because if that's the case, you know, you wouldn't have everything that you have right now, at least on a materialistic level. So how can somebody develop? That's obviously an extreme case. But how do we develop that sense of charata, this concept of regret that will be healthy, but is also real and not just, oh, yeah, I regret doing it. No, you regret the consequences of doing it. You actually are happy you did it. So it's a really important question. I think I was having a conversation with uh, my, my daughter's friend was giving a, a shiur on, on, uh, on shuva. And um, we were talking about how she was talking about the pasuk of ki achare shuvi nichanti, right, from Yirmiyahu. And, and she was talking about using the word nechama or lehit nachem as the language that some of the sources use for harata, which is, you know, another word. They, they both mean remorse or regret or whatever. But something that I was thinking about, and this is just, if it doesn't resonate, then throw it out because I don't know a source for this. It's just a thought that I had, um, is that regret to me feels like a more intellectualized emotion Whereas remorse feels more like a psychological emotion, like a, a more heart-based emotion. And so, for example, um, if, if I made a choice and I look back on that choice and I'm like, mm, that wasn't the right choice for this scenario. And there wasn't like a victim of the crime and there wasn't like a, you know, a, a suffering that happened. But I'm like, oh, I regret that. That wasn't the right call. Like I should have done this instead of that. Um, that can be sort of cognitive. 
right? And I, I think at, whereas like I hurt someone's feelings or I did something that had like a, a an observable or quantifiable cost to someone, to myself or to someone else, then I might feel more like that remorse. And so I think that like, there's something, again, I, I, I love these linguistic kind of wordplay kind of things. So the fact that Tanakh uses the word um, to mean regret for things in very interesting contexts, sometimes very counterintuitive contexts. And the word nechama more commonly is used to mean comfort. I don't think that's a coincidence. There's a certain comfort that we can take sometimes in revisiting our decisions, even if we can't reverse them. And even if we can't fully get on board emotionally with like, um, you know, for example, like I was talking to someone, let's say they, they ended up dating someone that they shouldn't have dated because it was like the ex of a close friend, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and it really well, and it's like, well, I regret it, but I don't regret it, right? Like it wasn't, a, it wasn't a kind thing to do, but like I benefited from that. I, I don't know that I would not, even though, you know, it's nice to make these like diagnostic lists again, psychologically or, or religiously, you know, sometimes human feelings and, you know, psychological interpersonal experiences are more messy. And so if I can say, look, you know, there are some mistakes that I made something or maybe not mistakes, there are choices that I made that were beneficial to me. And I, I, I you know, I gained from them, they were advantageous to me. And if I could go back and do it again, I would do it differently, even though I benefited from it, because my conscience, my the soul part of myself doesn't feel good about that, even though emotionally, I might still feel like, but well, I like the results of it, right? We have these different parts of ourselves, right? We're like mind, body, heart, soul, you know, like we're, we have parts. And so I can make a cognitive analysis and sort of say, you know, based on my values and my beliefs, right, which are informed by my soul, my relationship to God and my, you know, humility to like, you know, there's a higher, you know, set of values than my own momentary feelings of what I want to do, right? I recognize I goofed, I messed up, I shouldn't have done that. And even if I can't make a concrete correction or repair, I can say, you know, I don't want to be the kind of person who does that in the future. And, you know, if there's a way for me to make amends, I want to make amends. It's not realistic for me to ask for a kilo that's something that could correct it didn't correct. Um, but where there's no ability to correct, I can say, you know, I want to learn from that mistake and I want to do better. And I personally, I, I might be wrong psychologically, I might be wrong religiously, but I think there's room for nuance to say where like I am intellectually or cognitively remorseful or regretful for that thing, even though I don't feel like a pit in my stomach about it. I'm just like, I, you know, I don't think that was the right thing for me to have done. And, you know, I, I, if I could go back and do it over, I, I'd like to think that I would do it differently. If I have the opportunity to prove that, then I'd like to prove that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. Actually, a really interesting idea and a really interesting distinction, which I had not considered before. So thank you. I do want to come back to something you said earlier about the horizon and the idea of below, above, or on the horizon of healthy functioning. But I want to get to that soon. I first want to talk about something else. Before, Ellie Sheva, we had this conversation, you sent me a list of seven different aspects of, I'm not sure what the right term is, repenting, trying to make things better. Maybe you can tell me what that is. And I compared it myself with the list of three things I mentioned or four things, including restitution, that are part of the repentance process in Jewish law and thought. So could you mention what those seven aspects are? Because I found them to be very interesting. Maybe we could discuss that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Okay. So um, we uh, just to review, I think what you were talking about is that that charata or nechama, right? The regret, remorse, or azibat hachit. And then there's the vidoy, the confession, right? And kabbalah hachit, right? Like uh, uh, trying to do better for the future. That's what we're talking about, right? So uh, I had an article that's really more focused on repairing um, interpersonal uh, ruptures and um, broken it down into seven. And this is just sort of qualitative analysis. This is not based on any like data or research, but I think it kind of resonates to you know common sense, right? So if step the first couple of steps are more intrapersonal within the self, and then the follow the later steps are interpersonal. So the first step would be introspection, right? Like stopping to think about okay, what did I do? Like what like what responsibility do I need to take, right? And 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 who may have been 
harmed by a choice that I made that, that I, you know, take responsibility for, I take ownership for. The second one would be remorse. So once I've isolated, once I've identified and diagnosed, okay, this is a thing that I did that I'm not so proud of, or that I don't think it was right, then I then I allow myself to experience that emotional, you know, positive guilt or healthy guilt or, or healthy shame of like, oh, shoot, I, I did that. I, I don't want to be someone who, who's done that. I feel I feel regretful, A, I, you know, to the person, I feel empathy for the person that I may have caused harm to. And I feel regret for myself, I don't want to identify as someone who, who, who causes that kind of harm to other people. And then the third stage would be the acknowledgement. So I think acknowledgement has two phases. There's the admitting to myself and to God, okay, wait, I really did do that. And I have to like take a beat to own that and to feel humbled by, again, healthy humility, <laughs> by, um, by by what that means to me and, and to other people and what that caused. I realized that I did that. And then to then express it where appropriate, obviously I don't want to cause any more harm because sometimes people want to apologize at the expense of someone else. If someone else is blissfully unaware that I did this thing and that's going to hurt them, that's a different conversation. But where there is... Where where it would be socially appropriate for me to go and acknowledge it and then say like, you know, I want you to know, I recognize what I did. I, I, I understand how wrong it was and how I hurt you. And if appropriate to, you know, be a little bit more specific, sometimes that can be um, a very important step towards one's own repair, you know, personally, spiritually, and also relationship repair where possible. Um, then comes the apology phase, right? Like I, I recognize what I did is, is sometimes people want to skip the step of acknowledging. And I think that that's where the apologies kind of ring hollow. It's like, I'm really sorry, but like, what are you sorry for? Like, do I, do I need to feel understood in order to like be able to really like receive that apology on an emotional interpersonal level. Right. So I'm expressing, like, my I apologize if you were offended by what I said. Right. <laughs> right, right. I apologize that you're so sensitive. Right. Right. So, exactly. I apologize. Uh, I have to deal with you. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's the passive aggressive or, or aggressive, aggressive apology. But sometimes there's even like the more like sincere, but like non-specific or superficial apology. Like, you know, I'm sorry, I haven't been so nice lately, you know, which is it's, it's sincere, but sometimes it maybe needs to be more specific. Like, I'm sorry about what I said. I keep thinking about that line and it was so not right and it was so not accurate and it's not who I, how I think about you, you know. Um, so, um, expressing that sincere remorse as, as a specific I statement, because sometimes people will say for, I'm sorry for what happened. It's like, no, no, not what happened, what I did, <laughs> right? It didn't, it didn't happen. It was something that I caused to happen. So I think making, you know, taking responsibility as like, you know, in, in the first person, very vulnerable, um, but also important where appropriate. And, you know, it encompasses those items of, you know, remorse and acknowledgement of saying like, I do feel bad about it. I do recognize that it was, that, that it was, I, I was the one who did that. Um, and I, and I take, you know, I, I take accountability and ownership of whatever the consequences are for those things that happen. And I think it's really important to qualify again, depending on the nature of the relationship and the context and what happened, that is not the time to say, but you need to understand, but I just was either an excuse or like a, what about is like, okay, but you did that thing so like it's not so bad you know like there is a time and a place to talk about you know like not a hundred percent accountability but when you're apologizing we want it to be like you know that net right now i'm focusing on what i did wrong i'm not trying to th show you where you messed up to then after the apology i think there's room to say like if possible and again this will depend on the relationship and the context um if if it's possible to make some sort of concrete amends like is there something i can do to mitigate the damage that i caused mitigate the pain that i that i you know caused by my transgression making a commitment, like, I, I really would like to try and do better. I recognize that it's not just like, I don't intend to be Ahtav Ashiv. I don't want to just keep doing this over and over again. I, I really do. But I'm going to make, you know, again, where possible, specific efforts to to try and do better for you. And then number seven, this is something that I've, you know, kind of realized as an adult, you know, somebody was talking to me and they were saying how like you know I, I feel so bad about this thing that I did and whatever and I said well did you apologize and the person's like well how could I ask them to forgive me for this it's so big 
And that's when it kind of dawns on me, like, oh my goodness, you know, apologizing and asking for mechila are really two separate things. And I think because a lot of us grow up in this religious framework of like, we have to apologize and ask mechila, right? Like that is the, you know, and, and that's a very good, you know, partnership. But I think that it's it's also worthwhile from a from an interpersonal and relational standpoint to dissect those two pieces and say, hold on, apologizing and 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 saying, do you forgive me? Are really two separate actions, and they often really need to be two separate actions because apologizing is. I'm doing something hopefully for the relationship, right? I'm saying like, I, I feel really bad about what I did. So I need to take ownership for it. And I want to let you know that I'm sorry, I'm giving you something, right? Asking Mechila is I'm asking you to give me something, right? I'm asking you to give me some kind of comfort, some kind of resolution to this. And, and that's like not always appropriate, certainly not necessarily if, if it was, again, if it's a small slight, oh, I'm sorry, I hope you forgive me. Oh, sure, no problem. If that, obviously, we don't need to make everything dramatic. Um, but here we're talking about where there was a significant, you know, re repercussion or consequence to what happened, or it was a very big deal. So to say, like, I'm really sorry, I recognize what I did wrong. I was so bad. I was so wrong. You know, um, you know, can you forgive me? So like the can you forgive me part maybe needs to be a different conversation, right? Meaning right now, I just need to apologize. And it's not because I want us to be all squared away and good. It's because I need to own this. I need to like sort of pay for what I did by showing you like I get it. And I I, I recognize that, right, without asking you to do anything back for me. Um, and I think that's like an important, you know, piece of the story. When you first sent these to me, that was the piece that I noticed most intently, this concept, which I'd never thought about before, that important distinction between apology and asking for forgiveness. And I'd like to get back to that too, just to make sure I'm summarizing it correctly. I'm going to mention these seven steps only so that all of us, the listeners and I, will be able to have these seven steps organized in our minds as we approach Yom Kippur. Introspection, remorse, acknowledgement, apology, offering to make amends if possible, committing to try to do better, and requesting forgiveness. Did I get that right? Yes, I think so. <laughs> okay, good. And again, so, this is not like halakha lemosha misinai. You know, people might... No, but I thought it was a very, yeah. very helpful, a very, very helpful list for myself. I thought that maybe other people could also benefit by listening to it. Let's talk about that a little bit more, the difference between apology and asking for forgiveness, because apology just means I'm acknowledging I did something really wrong to you, and I'm not asking to repair the relationship necessarily. That may or may not be appropriate. It might come later on. But requesting for forgiveness is saying, let's make sure that we are back to what we used to be. The reason I'm asking this right now is I've always sort of wondered what exactly it means for someone to forgive. What psychologically is happening when I forgive somebody for doing something wrong? What is happening, so to speak, in God's psychology when he forgives us for doing something wrong? So can you explain really what the process of forgiving is from the perspective of the one who's doing the forgiving rather than the one who's asking for the forgiveness? Yeah, so this is another area where I, I so appreciate our Misora. I feel like, you know, in the Mahsor, we say over again, you know, Slicha, Mechila, and Kapara, you know, there are multiple words that are used for forgiving. And um, I, I think that, you know, we know it's not a coincidence when there are multiple words for something, they're usually not meant to be redundant. And there's usually like a wealth of nuance within those. And the same way we talked about before, how there might be flavors and layers and um, angles of remorse or regret or apology, I think that the same is true when it comes to forgiveness. First of all, I think God as a forgiver versus humans as a, for a forgiver, like in my last vote, right? Like it's a completely different, you know, we can't really hurt God as it were, you know? So 
Um, so he's, you know, much more forgiving than than we can be, although we are meant to imitate, you know, we want to try to be more like that. Um, but I, I do think that the linguistic differences um, reflect the different emotional nuances and distinctions that we can offer. So for example, I don't think that a person saying, can you forgive me has to be synonymous with can we pretend like this never happened? Or can we go back to the way things were, right? To use a dramatic example, right? If a couple gets divorced, because of something, you know, primarily that one of them was more um, culpable for, right? And that that person says, like, you know, I, I really apologize, I hope you can forgive me. I don't think that person's going to mean, oh, can we get back together now, right? Like, that's not realistic. But but I think in, in a case like that, let's say the apology and the request for forgiveness would mean on a more superficial level, like there's this inflamed issue between us that I'm like actively indignant and outraged and wounded about and at the risk of sounding too like, you know, prophets of gloom and doom, you know, like if, if you know, if one of us would die tomorrow, I don't want either of us to go to hell for this, you know, kind of, you know, like at the most simplistic level, I don't want anyone to suffer for from God's eyes of being like, I don't want anyone to be like, you know, why we say to you know, we kind of want to be like spiritually squared away. So there might be people that I feel hurt by or angered by or wronged by, but like, I want to go into my Yom Kippur with the feeling of like, I, there might be people who feel that way about me. I don't even realize that I put harm to. So I'm going to try and just square that away on a spiritual level. Not that we made any, you know, personal repair on the relationship, but just like on, on the official spiritual document that says, I, I, I can, I can check off that box, right? That would be the most external version of Mechila. And I do think there's value to that, right? Like, like, I think it would be nice to know that if I did something wrong, that even if the person's not ready to like be my friend again, or be in a relationship, trust, or whatever, they're moving towards some kind of uh, moving, moving beyond, like moving forward. Can I ask it. you what that means? Like, so does that mean they're no longer angry? Does it mean that they're no longer going to claim anything against you? What exactly? I, I understand what you mean, but I'm still a little bit confused. You check the box, machalach. Is that box just something which I own, which I can withhold at my pleasure? And I'm not going to withhold it anymore, but it means nothing emotionally for me. Or is there something emotionally that changes when I say it? Because I would think the latter. So I think HVH, like, I think it could be either one. I, I want to be careful not to speak on behalf, like, there might be a halakhic answer to that question that I'm not qualified to offer. But I think that from a mental health perspective, which I'm also only one person, so other people might disagree. Um, I, I think it, it, it could be either one, again, depends on the relationship and the nature of the offense. And so, you know, if, if somebody did something so bad that I'm still feeling very wounded, and I don't see myself being emotionally over it at all but at the very minimal level i just don't want to be responsible for someone else to be punished by god i think that's like the most minimal it's like i'm still hurt i'm still wounded i can't still i still can't look you in the eye or even hear your name without cringing but like i I just don't want it on my head that god is mad at you so i'm gonna let that go whatever between you me and god like i I don't want i'm I'm out of that triangle right like i think that's the most simplistic and this and and by the way that's not so easy to do i've met people who can't even do that right because they're they're so they're so traumatized so so and and far be it for me to tell them that they have to do that. But I think that that would be like one level. I'll give you a, like a more a more human analogy. Um, two people are in an argument or so, so somebody feels hurt by another person. And they go up and say like, I'm, I'm really sorry. Do you think you can forgive me? And the person's like, no, no, I can't forgive you. What you've done was really unforgivable. It's inexcusable. I can't even believe you would ask me to forget. Go away. I never want to see you again. Right. That is a, an I don't forgive you scenario. It's very clear. Right. Then let's say another person, another, another scenario is the person says, you know, do you, do you forgive me? I'm, I'm really sorry. And the person's like, yeah, okay, whatever. I forgive you. Right. So that second answer, it doesn't sound very loving or sincere or repairing, but it's an answer you would rather get than the first one. <laughs> right. Right. So, That's so interesting. It's, 
it's it's sort of an intellectualized, formalized version of like, I forgive you, but like, get out of my face, I don't want to see you kind of thing. Sometimes, it, and again, depending on the relationship, how important it is to you, if it's someone you don't really care about, you don't necessarily need to do a, an emotional interpersonal repair. It could just be enough to say like, whatever, you did something wrong. And like, I get it, you, you apologize over it, right? But if it's someone that you're going to have in your life and be in a relationship with, you might want more of a repair than that. So sometimes what could happen is you could say, you know, I'm really sorry. I recognize, you know, you do those first few steps and, um, and, and the person will say back, you know, I, I appreciate what you're saying. I, I hear your apology. Um, uh, technically I accept your apology because I understand that you're sincere and I recognize that you are you know, trying to make it better. I'm not finished feeling hurt. I'm still very hurt or I'm still suffering the, re the, the repercussions of what you've done. Um, so I'm going to need some space, you know, and our relationship is not what it used to be. I don't know that it ever will be. Maybe it will in time. Maybe it won't. But I appreciate that you apologize. I accept your apology, at least at the surface level. And, you know, I, I guess now I just need some time, you know. And, and so that's like another layer down, right, where it's an intellectualized apology with an emotional expression of some sort of acceptance, uh, but also a boundary saying I'm not done with this. And again, I don't know enough about the linguistics. I know that there is not a consensus the you know Torah linguistic commentaries between these you know three or four different you know there's the masloquiot about how to translate them so but but I I think that you could probably find someone that would line these up you know and, and just sort of say like yeah there are gradations and then like something that I really really love and I don't remember where I learned this but I'm sure you'll know is like the idea that when a person does um, a chuva meyira right it could turn a an intentional sin into a chuba from a place of fear right uh, for, um, an intentional sin into like almost like what would be considered an accidental sin but chuba meava you know re uh, repair from love turns a sin into like uh almost like a mitzvah right like something like a good a good deed and as a Thinking like, this is so magic. like I don't understand how does that make sense and and as an adult I realized that sometimes an offense within a relationship can be used as like a fulcrum as like a leverage opportunity to create a kind of intimacy and closeness that really wasn't there before and we're, we don't look for hurts we don't look to wound each other but it, when it becomes like sort of an opportunity to break open the an, another like kind of unlock a new layer of the relationship that takes you to a deeper place then that becomes written into the story as like wow that's when everything started to get more beautiful in this in this friendship in this relationship whatever it is i think when the relationship is worthy of that kind of work and a person can say like you know i, I i'm working on forgiving or there yields a conversation of an open vulnerable real transaction now, i don't mean transactional in a cold way but more like there's it's two ways mutual is a better word then sometimes it could create the kind of connection i remember i had a friend school used to say like it's good to fight because she would sometimes like get upset about things i'm like oh, i'm not into fighting i have no patience for like arguments whatever she would say like no sometimes fighting is good it makes people closer and i thought that was like really dumb and then when i got older i was like you know what i understand what she means because sometimes when we just avoid issues and we like kind of pretend that we're like oh i'm not into the drama i don't really care then we end up sort of just pulling away from people and not being our full selves with them but when we can have the courage to say like you know if there's something going on i think we should talk about it and we do it in a way that's you know respectful and empathetic and healthy and open and flexible then it, it it unlocks a possibility of connection that wasn't necessarily there before. And that's what, like the deepest, most version of forgiveness can happen. And when, and when that does, it's almost magical. Yeah, that's very interesting. And comparing that to tshuva me'ava, repenting or repairing out of love, is, I, I like that very much. It's very important. 
I want to ask you about when it's inappropriate to offer an apology. Now, I do understand that there are times when asking for forgiveness, as you said, that's something where the one who's forgiving is giving it to the one who offended him or her. So there are times when if that person doesn't want to look at you, asking for forgiveness might be a selfish type of act in a certain context. Is it ever wrong, however, to offer an apology? Is it wrong because I wronged that person so much they never want to see me again by my offering an apology, even though I just want to acknowledge my guilt I'm doing them a disservice by even being in their life whatsoever. Are there times when an apology is unacceptable? It's a really hard question. You know, one of the one of the things that I really struggle with um, when talking or writing publicly about these delicate and very sensitive phenomena is I try to avoid too much generalization to the point of detriment. And I, I think that you're right. I think there are scenarios where sometimes an apology, and there, not I think, there definitely are scenarios where an apology could do more harm than good. And I'm not only talking about where you're ending up disclosing something that's going to cause hurt, even, even, even beyond that, I think there are times like that. That being said, I think it could be very tempting for a person to avoid the discomfort of a really difficult apology by justifying it and saying, well, you know, I think they don't really want the apology. I think it'll just bring up, you know, the trauma or it'll just make them even madder or whatever. And so that's why I think it's really important to analyze that question on a case by case basis. And sometimes with like a third party, more objective or more impartial perspective. And sometimes, you know, if there are people in the same family or in the same friend group or whatever to like kind of get advice or have a third party go between and just say, you know, I want to offer an apology in writing or something, make some kind of restitution, not because I think it's going to be like, um, you know, a, a load off my chest because like I, I don't necessarily deserve that. But, you know, I just feel like that person deserves to know. Sometimes when you talk, I mean, this is one of the most, um, you know, painful and shameful and difficult things to recover from or, you know, to, to deal with is let's say sexual abuse stories. Um, you know, so there are times where people say, like, how could I even apologize? Even when there is remorse, you know, it's, just, it's, it's too big to apologize for. And there are times where, you know, there are survivors who'd be like, yeah, I don't want to hear anything from them at all. Go, I, you know, I, I don't want to no 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 shaykhut. I don't want any, you know, and, and then there are times where people will say, all I wanted was them to acknowledge what they did. All I wanted that was for them to say, yes, I did do that to you. And I'm so sorry for the hurt that I caused. So I don't think there is a, you know, universal answer. I think that in general, when people are in Sa'ar, um, there are so many wrong things to say and often very few right things to say. And so I, I think that, you know, it goes back to the, the you know, um, specificity of, of, you know, individuals and the relationship. But I think that it's always better to ask even indirectly, like even just like if you have a, you know, a go between a shaliach that you could say, like, I want to do whatever's right in this scenario or whatever is the most right thing in this scenario. Um, I, I think that would be worthwhile. I, I've even had scenarios where people said like, oh, they don't want to hear from me. And then they were able to say like, here, I wrote out an apology and give it to someone they both knew and at the right time can share it with them, you know? And, and so I think there are ways to sort of titrate or buffer um, the remorse again, without the the request for anything in, in exchange, right? Because sometimes people will be like, well, I don't know what they want. I apologize for them. They didn't even call me back. It's like, oh, but, you know, it, that's not why you're apologizing. <laughs> you know, you're right. But, okay. That's very helpful. Thank you for that. I asked you a few moments ago about what it means to forgive, really, what that means to actually go and have that experience of forgiving. So now I want to go perhaps a little bit deeper psychologically. How can a person learn how to forgive? There are people that we're really angry at, and maybe we shouldn't forgive in certain scenarios. But in other cases, we know that it's a good thing to forgive. That's what our Jewish teachings teach us, that forgiving is a godly action. If we want God to forgive us, we should probably try to forgive other people as well. And sometimes it's very, very difficult. So even if I know what forgiving means, I'm no longer going to have it on my cheshbon, I'm no longer going to want God to get back at you, or maybe even I want to repair the relationship. But as you said, for some people, I just can't do it. Okay, for that person who just can't do it, but would like to try to do it, how does one find it within him or herself 
to forgive? Are there any tips you could give? That's a very, very heavy question. I think it's also one of those things that is so hard to talk about in public because almost definitely when we're talking about something that's too hard to forgive, we're talking about trauma. And when we're talking about trauma, we move beyond the logical and much more into the deeply psychological, you know, and it's, it's very uh, subjective, very individualistic. So number one, I want to reiterate something important that you said. I want to like kind of like like highlight what you said, which is that I don't think that it's ever the place of me as a third party or even as the offending or especially as the offending party to say, okay, but I really want you to work on forgiving, right? Like it's only, it, it only is appropriate. And again, that if God or, or, or the Rishonim, whatever tells us we need to work on forgiving no matter what. So that's for God and the, you know, and our rabbis say, but, you know, as, as a lay person, I feel like it's really important for me and other lay people not to be imposing that value on other people who are in pain, you know, but if a person comes to me, let's say as a therapist or as a friend and says like, I really want to work on forgiving, but I'm just too hurt. I'm too angry. I'm too, you know, whatever. I'm not there yet. I guess what I would recommend is I'm a very much um, influenced by uh, a narrative therapy approach. And narrative therapy is the idea that we're all living our life story. We're all living in autobiography and our autobiographies intersect with other people's, you know, memoirs and autobiographies. And sometimes um, when we're carrying trauma or pain or um, any kind of uh, a difficult story in our in our in the cells of our body in our nervous system you know and in, in in our psyches it feels really heavy and it sometimes blocks out the space that we would love to have clear for other things that are more you know pleasant experiences and so um, there's a, a technique called narrative externalization which is just a fancy way of saying you know vomit it out onto writing you know just kind of write it out on a pet pa- pen and paper word document. Um, write how you feel, write what happened, you know, write through tears. Don't worry about um, grammar or diction or paragraphs or anything. Just kind of like journal it out of your system. Is this going to work for everyone? No, there might be people for whom this makes things worse, but for a lot of people, it makes things a lot better. And what this does is it takes it out of this ruminatory, you know, kind of circulating in our blood kind of feeling and says, you know, this was a story. It doesn't define my life. It affected my life, but it has a beginning, a middle and an end and creates space for, um, new stories and new perspectives and new feelings. And sometimes what that does is it softens or mitigates not the crime that was done, but the effect that it continues to have on the person. Um, I say this very tentatively because it's not so cute and simple that you journal for a few weeks and like you're all better. Um, But I think that in terms of like tips and tricks of like trying to move, you know, you don't really move past things, but sometimes you move from them or move beyond or with them, you know, depending on which preposition you feel is is most accurate to your emotional experience. um, I think that might be something that you can do. And I think also like that nominal forgiveness, that like very simplistic technical forgiveness, I would even say like, why, why do you want to work on forgiving this person, right? If they're so bad and you're so angry, like, why wouldn't you just say, no, I don't want to forgive, right? And if the per- if the person says, well, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I don't know what they went through to make them do something like that. I'm like, oh, well, that sounds like empathy, right? So empathy is, is a good step towards forgiveness. If the person says, well, I don't really want to forgive them, but I think that God wants me to. It's like, oh, well, you want to be godly. Well, that, that's kind of a big deal. Okay, let's, let's talk more about what it means to be godly, you know? So kind of look for the motivation and look for what the foothold is that's getting them there and kind of walk with the person or walk with oneself, right? And say like, what would resonate with my psychological experience? Not not kind of like fight within myself, but kind of build within myself the capacity for, you know, whatever version of forgiveness I want to work towards. Okay. And now let me ask about forgiving yourself. 
which is a little bit different because forgiving someone else requires a very different kind of set of emotions than forgiving yourself. And sometimes forgiving yourself is very easy. And sometimes forgiving yourself can be extraordinarily hard, much harder than forgiving somebody else because you are suffering with some sort of crippling shame, disbelief, as we talked about at the beginning, that I am a bad person. Not that I did something bad, but I am actually bad. So how do you learn to forgive yourself or are there times one shouldn't forgive oneself? Um, I guess it's it's really hard to make a, a moral judgment on, on that kind of thing. But let's say we're not talking about like a heinous crime that destroyed somebody else's life, right? Let's say we're talking about forgiving ourselves for things that we did to ourselves, right? Or for mistakes that we made that either caused a moderate amount of, you know, normal, you know, oh no, I hurt someone's feelings in the normal course of, you know, relationships or events, or I did something that I consider to be spiritually wrong in God's eyes, right? So again, coming back to that healthy version of shame, even if I think like I'm not such a good person, right? Let's say, I, let's say I think that, let's say I look back and it's not like, oh, I'm a really good person who just punctuated my good life with a few bad things. I'm like, oh, I really made a whole series of bad choices that led to me doing things that I'm very ashamed of and very not proud of. And, you know, there was some uh, casualties along the way, right? I could say, okay, is there like some kind of core goodness in me that is the impetus for me to want to repair and do better? Right. And I can grieve like I can cry. I can cry for those mistakes and the effects that they had and the years that were wasted or the, you know, the the repercussions that happened as a result of what I've done and, and really like let myself feel all those feelings um, and then say, OK, but now what can I do? Right. Because sometimes I think we get tripped up is where we think that our past is the dictating of our future. Right. The past is different than the future. And um, and, and then there's also the present. Like, what can I do right here, right now to make things a little bit better? Um, another like kind of a cute wordplay that I was thinking of in terms of like this idea of busha, like this shame, is that if we want to reconfigure our busha to turn it into something more valuable, more helpful, right? It's the same letters as the word shuva, right? As in shuva Israel, right? Like we want to return, right? We can take that busha and use it as an opportunity to return to like my core values, like who I want to be, like how how I want to show up in my relationship to God, to myself, to you know whatever, and and say to myself like. So, sometimes I think that there's like an imbalance, you know, sometimes when we're judgmental of ourselves, we're equally judgmental of other people. And then we can call ourselves out and say, oh, wow, look, this judgmental streak that I have doesn't seem to be serving me well at all anywhere. <laughs> and I can be a little more gentle and compassionate and, and generate, you know, more helpful thoughts and, um, you know, approaches to things. Um, but sometimes I think there's an imbalance where there are certain people who are way more critical of other people and much more, you know, justifying of themselves and vice versa. Some people who are much more critical of themselves. And when it comes to other people, they're much more um, forgiving. So I think it's it's good to know. And, and sometimes we can, you know, kind of be all over the, the, you know, the map with that. And so I think sometimes it's helpful when I'm talking to someone who's really beating himself or herself up um, in a way that feels excessive to whatever they did wrong. I can say, look, look, imagine if a friend of yours confided in you, like I did this thing, right. And, and I feel so awful. I don't think that there's any rede redemption for me, right. They would sometimes smile and be like, oh, it would be so easy for me to comfort them and say, oh, come on, that's not so bad. Right. I'm like, okay, but like now look in the mirror and you're that friend. And there it's, it's such a simple intervention and like, it's not my own, you know, innovation. People do it all the time, but I think sometimes stepping outside of ourselves uh, in terms of trying to generate self-forgiveness is to recognize that there are a lot of us who are much more quick to forgive and, um, you know, help other people comfort them that way. And when we can step outside of our individualized shame, um, we can do that. I think that can be helpful. But I think even just like from a more like intellectualized perspective to say, like, where is this shame taking me? Right. Like if I feel ashamed of myself and all I'm, I remember I was once working with a couple and the wife was like very eloquently, but harshly <laughs> describing all the things that she was upset at her husband about. 
And this is not an identifying story at all. Um, and the husband just like sat there and he's like, you're right. I'm the worst. Right. Like he wasn't being sarcastic. He was just feeling really bad and like recognizing. And I thought she was going to like soften up. And she looked at him and she goes, don't you dare do that. And I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> and, and she's like, I'm the worst means that now we have to take care of you. I don't want to hear you say I'm the worst. I didn't marry the worst. I married the best. You're a great guy. You're not the worst. You're a great guy who did really bad things. And you need to fix it and you can fix it. I was like, wow, that's really smart. <laughs> you know, um, you know, and I think that I'm the worst in a way, like she said, like, that's a cop out, you know, and it is, it, there's a certain cop out of saying, well, what do you want? I'm just a terrible person. Right. And it's like, no, e even if you want to identify currently as a terrible person, there's like this, this concept of neuroplasticity, right. Our brains can, can change. So maybe we can, you know, generate a new phrase like psychoplasticity, right. Our souls can change, right. We can be, we, you know, maybe I was a bad person in the past, but like, I can be a better person tomorrow. As you were speaking and you used the word redemption which I find fascinating because often we think of forgiveness as one category and redemption is something else. But usually redemption, we think almost on the national level, this is something which happens to the people of Israel or the world. Everyone's redeemed. But if we think of it almost as metaphorically on the individual, we say that Mashiach is going to come, that it may take a long time, it may not happen in our lifetimes, but redemption is inevitable. If we can somehow transfer that into our psyche, and I was thinking this as you were talking, to say, no, 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 you, you're going to be redeemed. You are redeemable. It might not be now. It might not even be in this lifetime, but you have the potential to be redeemed. And remembering that on a theological, religious level, maybe that's a way of also reminding yourself that there's no such thing as you're redeemable, especially if you're still alive. You obviously still have a job to do on a religious level if you are still around today. Yeah, I, I think in terms of that, like individualized redemption, you know, we talk about people needing a Yeshua, right? We talk about like sometimes we're praying for someone and like they need a, a, some kind of salvation, some kind of redemption. And yeah, like on, you know, a global or a national scale, it's, you know, we want the world to heal. We want Tikkun Olam. We want nations to get along in Garza, Avon, Keves and all. But I, I think on an individual level, I remember as a little kid, like I, I always liked the the movies and the TV shows where like the bad guy becomes a good guy rather than the, the bad guy gets run into the ocean. You know, like it was always like felt better to know that there was like a chuva at the end rather than just like, oh, well, they just had to kill the bad guy. So like, <laughs> you know, right. yeah, no, definitely so. Elisheva, in the little time we have left, though, I want to go back to something that you mentioned at the beginning, this narrative therapy technique where we frame our thoughts, feelings and challenges as being interpreted through three possible lenses as either below, on, or above the horizon of healthy functioning. You mentioned below the horizon is these negative and counterproductive emotions like anger, frustration, sadness. On the horizon is something that's relatively neutral, and above the horizon is something that's positive. Could we go into that a little bit more just now in the time we have left? What are the negative, what are the ones that are neutral, and what are the positive, and why is that so? Okay, so really the way that you and I both summarize that is really like a couple hundred pages worth of the book. So it's it's hard to really, I would just correct, I wouldn't say that below the horizon is negative and above the horizon is positive. I would say that um, below the horizon is unhelpful negativity um, and above the horizon is a healthy iteration of whatever's going on, right? So um, we don't, we're not looking for toxic positivity or fake positivity in terms of above the horizon. Sometimes there's unhealthy, there's healthy anger, there's 
healthy um, sadness. There's a, a healthy version of some, uh, what we would normally call a negative or some people prefer to say difficult emotion. But I think that the way we sort of like express, articulate, metabolize that emotion could bring us to a better place of where we want to be going, either emotionally or in terms of our actions. And I think that kind of um, ramifies into two general categories of acceptance or action, and sometimes a combination of the two, right? So um, if, if there's something that I can't do much about, right, like the serenity prayer, right, the, the ability to accept that I can't change, right, or, or action, right, the courage to do what I can. So um, anything that will lead me towards some sort of a healthier um, approach whatever's going on, I think is what I would call above the horizon. That doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to mean positive. Sometimes I could have like a good hard cry and it would be above the horizon of healthy thinking because it's a, a cathartic, um, you know, getting in touch with myself, spiritual cleanse kind of cry, right? So and, for example, and, can I ask you, does that mean, for example, when somebody is grieving yeah. over a lost relative, that would be above the horizon because totally. that's an appropriate positive Exactly. Reaction, even though it's obviously a sad situation. Exactly, exactly. Yes, yes. And that's why I try to, in, in terms of that intervention, the horizon, I think I try to like move away from too much focus on the black and white, negative, positive, moralizing, and more towards like the, 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 not dichotomy, but the spectrum of like unhealthy to healthy. Like at the end of the day, like, is this serving me, my relationships, my life mission or not? And if not, what can I do to move the needle more towards, right? It's not a binary. It's not like, oh, I'm doing bad or good. It's like, what can I do a little bit better that would move me towards being the person that I want to be in this moment, in this circumstance, in this thought, feeling, or action? Just as a final question then, how can that help people listening? In other words, if I want to use that technique right now, yeah. could you just give some advice? If I want to say, okay, I want to make sure I'm over the horizon as opposed to below, <laughs> in terms of using that in a healthy way, can you give some examples of ways that people can actually utilize this technique? Yeah, so it's it's a little too general for me to give like a, a very useful- I understand. But yeah, but I can try. I, I think a, a useful question to ask. Podcasts are unfortunately general by yes, definition. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think like a useful question to ask ourselves, like when we're engaging with, again, a thought, feeling, relationship or, or circumstance is to say, like, what is it if I can think of something that I could say or do or think about that would help me feel a little bit more empowered, a little bit more hopeful, um, a little bit more of the person that I want to be and how I want to show up in this scenario to the extent that it's within my locus of control. So as, as general and as generic as that is to get really mindful and present with like the best version of ourselves or like the healthiest in the moment, the, the most accessible, healthy version of ourselves, right? It might not be perfect. It won't be perfect because perfect isn't healthy, right? But it, it, it might not be ideal. We might tomorrow think of something even better, but how can I shuva? How can I bring myself back to like that core centered feeling of like what makes me feel egocentric? What makes me feel like I'm, I'm, I'm living in harmony with my beliefs and my values and the kind of person that I want to be, even though I can't control all the circumstances around me, I either could come to a place of like general acceptance, some form of like even temporary serenity about it or some kind of action. Like, is there something I can do in this moment that would um, reflect and demonstrate something that that feels right to me? Okay. Ali Shavalis, this has been very enlightening. And I think it's a very important conversation for us to have, especially as we approach Yom Kippur, which is the day that's dedicated to forgiveness. Of course, every day is potentially a day of forgiveness, a day of self-improvement, but Yom Kippur is a time in particular where we really center all of our thoughts and feelings upon that. So this has been very helpful. I'm sure everyone listening also has gained a lot. So I thank you. Thank you so much for having me. My mom has taken up going to the park to practice yoga. My dad's going to a club, but not a book club, a salsa club. Finding new hobbies comes with age. 
My mom has started getting lost and not knowing where she's going. Becoming lost or disoriented doesn't. Confusion with time or place may be a sign of Alzheimer's. An early diagnosis can help improve the quality of life for your loved one. Learn the warning signs of Alzheimer's at 10signs.org. Brought to you by the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.